My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, today we're going to be in our Bibles, John chapter 11 and 12. If you've got them, please open them up. And as you open up your Bibles, um, it's wedding season. Many of you guys have been to weddings. Maybe some of you guys are getting married this summer. And um, one of the questions I want to start by asking you guys is, is what's your favorite part of a wedding ceremony? For some of you guys, you love it when it's the, they turn towards one another, bride and groom, and they communicate their vows. That's a powerful moment. Many of you guys might say, I love when they pronounce Mr. and Mrs. for the very first time and the fun music comes on and the bride and groom rush out of the, the wedding chapel and everybody claps. It's a celebratory, celebratory moment in the wedding. For me, uh, I did a wedding just last weekend and uh, there was this powerful um, moment in the wedding and it was one of my favorites. And Getting to officiate weddings means that I get to kind of stand up and I have a unique vantage point to observe what's happening in the room. And so I'm standing next to the groom and uh, the bride is about to enter in and she starts to walk towards her future husband. And this moment happens where they lock eyes for the very first time in that day. And the husband uh, to be, uh, this man, this is an Air Force pilot. This guy is kind of a masculine dude, okay? He's been like trained by the military to stay uh, in self-control emotionally under extreme circumstances, okay? And uh, he's not the dude that wears skinny jeans and has like a scarf in the summer for decorative purposes, okay? He's not that guy, okay? And yet I look over at him and he is weeping, like losing it visibly, uncontrollably responding to the reality that this good and perfect, beautiful little gift, his wife is moving towards him. And then I look at her and she responds to his emotion and she's thinking to herself, God has provided me this husband who loves me and has pursued me and cared about me and is now weeping about uh, getting to, to marry me. And she starts like ugly crying, like uncontrollably, okay? Like just, it's out of control. And then I start crying and I'm emotional. I mean, it's all a hot mess. And so um, it, it, what I'm saying is in that moment, here's what's happening. Their hearts were filled with gratitude for how good God has been to them. And there was an emotional response. And this groom, who was maybe stoic by nature, became undone and emotional by understanding all that God has given him in allowing him to be uh, the leader of this woman. And so um, uh, what I want to say is that is a beautiful picture. And if you've been a part of those moments, it, it's powerful. And we kind of see those kind of moments happening in our text. John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, we're going to see Mary and Martha um, passionately and emotionally and in very real ways, in almost uncomfortable ways, in scandalous ways, respond to Jesus by worshiping him, by loving him, by celebrating him. And to understand where we're at in the story, if you guys remember John chapter 11, Jesus did this amazing, miraculous thing. He did his final public miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus got sick. Lazarus died. Lazarus was buried. He was placed in a tomb. Jesus shows up at the funeral, speaks to Lazarus. Lazarus comes back to life, okay? And in light of that miracle, that was such a powerful miracle. It was so undeniable, so unprecedented that everybody in the community and in the land had to respond. Who is this Jesus? Is he Savior and the Son of God? Or is he just some teacher and just some miracle worker? This miracle has ripple effects and implications. And what we're going to see is that people had to respond. Some people, many people, believe that Jesus really was the Son of God and placed their faith in him. Jesus, right before this in chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
If you believe in me, though you may die, you will have eternal life. After saying that he's the resurrection of life, he shows up at a funeral and raises a guy from the dead. Guys, that's not normal. Amen? I've been to some funerals. That typically does not happen, okay? And yet, the religious leaders, others, don't place their faith in him. Instead, they reject him, and they respond in increasingly disappointing ways. And so what I want to see in our text is we're going to see five different characters as we walk through our verses. And I want to look at each one of them because each one of them have a unique response to King Jesus. And as Christians, isn't this part of our life that we understand what Jesus has done for us and yet we're constantly responding to his leadership, to his voice, um, to his workings in our lives. And I, I, want us, I want God to use this text in the life of our church, that we would look at this scripture and not just learn some things about some characters that existed 2,000 years ago, I want us to look at this text and say, God, God, would you help me to respond in real ways to your leading, to who you are? Would you help me to worship you in ways that, that glorify you and give me joy? And so I, I think some of us in this room, you might have received Jesus. Maybe, you, maybe you've accepted Jesus. And yet in this moment right now, you, you've just been kind of passively indifferent towards Jesus. And I want God to use this to spark something within you that once again, you would burn hot with affection for King Jesus. So let me look at our text. Uh, We're going to start in uh, uh, chapter 11. The first character we're going to look at is the religious leaders. And the religious leaders reject Jesus. Now, Jesus literally, like I said, he just worked a powerful miracle. He kind of claimed that he was going to do it, and then he actually did it. And if there's anybody that should have understood who Jesus is and and received him as Savior and Lord, it's the religious leaders. These are the guys that you kind of show up to your city group and give a, a public, passionate prayer, and everybody be like, man, that guy sounds really spiritual. That's these guys. They have the big theological degrees. They're the experts in the land on God. And yet, as we move through the Gospel of John, these guys are incredibly disappointing. They consistently reject Jesus. And instead of looking at this miracle and saying, surely he's the Messiah, instead they start to feel threatened by him, and uh, they start a manhunt, and they try to kill him. Uh, and so let's look at this in verse... Um, 47 and 48, chapter 11. Here's what it says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You get this conversation? It's not filled with faith and love and admiration for Jesus. It's, it's really at the core root of this conversation is fear. Jesus, what what are you going to do about this guy? He's playing with a stacked deck. Like we're giving sermons, but this guy's showing up to funerals, bringing people from death to life. He's got a power that we don't have. And if we let him continue, the crowds are going to lead us. If we let him continue, the Romans are, are going to eliminate our authority and our favor that we have in the land. We're going to be found out as frauds. We've got to stop Jesus. We've got to Uh, undermine him. And so what they feel is they feel like they're going to be kind of the the horse and buggy in a land filled with automobiles, that they're going to be the outdated ones that get pushed to the side and that Jesus is a threat to take their income and their status uh, away from them. And uh, later, because of this self-preservation mode that they get into, verse 53, it says they come up with a plan to kill Jesus. Then in verse 57, it says they get so paranoid that they start walking around the city saying, if you see Jesus, please let us know because we're looking for him. They start and organize a manhunt, okay? Um, This is not a great place to be in response to Jesus. And uh, let me pause because I think there's some people in this room, maybe you're not yet a Christian, 
and you're not organizing a manhunt to kill Jesus, and yet maybe you've heard the words of Jesus, and yet maybe you've seen Jesus work in powerful ways in your friends and your family's life, and you've been in this place, and you have subtly or silently and consistently rejected the fact that you're both sinful and yet Jesus Christ is a savior that you desperately need, who loves you, pursues you, and has invited you uh, to experience forgiveness of your sins. And I just want to plead with you, please do not get comfortable in the place of rejecting Jesus. He is not coming to take something from you. He's coming to give his very life for you. And when I look at the religious leaders, do you guys remember Jesus? He didn't come to take their jobs. He didn't come to put them out of work. Jesus came to do the very work that they could never do, mainly atone for our sin. Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give life. Jesus came that we might have eternal life. Jesus came that we might be adopted into the family of God. Jesus came to give and not take, and yet these religious leaders see Jesus as a threat. Christians, we're not off the hook. By the way, if you're like, okay, thank you, Chris, for speaking to the non-Christians in the room because they need to not reject Jesus. They need to receive Jesus. Christians, good morning, by the way. Um, this is for us. I was thinking about how does this really apply to my life? And one of the things I thought it applied to my life is, is that I'm quick to say, Jesus, I get the storyline. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that you went to the cross. I understand that you died in my place so that I can experience forgiveness of sins. But listen, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I receive Jesus as Savior, and I s- kind of try to silence his voice as leader and Lord in my life. You guys know this? You guys have been in this place? Jesus, please, listen, I receive you as Savior. I appreciate what you did for me on the cross. But please, please don't try to tell me what to do on my phone. Please don't speak into me about my sexuality and, and what I'm doing that nobody else knows about. Please don't call me to like love and forgive my spouse and honor her and cherish her. Don't, don't get involved in my relationship, Jesus. You know, no, Jesus, listen, please, please don't try to tell me to love the socially awkward person in my city group who has like a collection of Japanese swords in his basement. Don't, don't you dare do that, Jesus. I'm the only one that dealt with that. Okay. (laughs) Y'all are acting. Sure. Sure. You move towards messy people really naturally. Okay. You know what? Um, But, but have you had that? Have you had that? Like, I'm going to slowly silence the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life. And, and really what happens is we say, Jesus, I want to accept some things, but I kind of want to reject you on a few levels, right? Let me keep you out of here. Let me stiff arm you here. And, and Christians, what I want to just call you to is, is that's not a place where we will grow. That is not a place where we will honor King Jesus. And that's not the place where we will experience the greatest joy. I want us, church, to not respond to the grace of God by rejecting him, but saying, Jesus, you are both Savior and you are Lord and leader of our lives. Amen? Point number two I want to show you guys is we've looked at uh, the religious leaders. I want to show you Martha, who joyfully starts to serve Jesus, joyfully starts to serve Jesus. And so um, what happens here, she, Martha is the first one that responds rightly to the grace of God in her life. And what Martha does is, is she starts to, to serve. Uh, she is the person who's an activator. She is a doer. She's not a sitter. Um, if you are a person that doesn't sit well, you're not a JV Christian. You're just like Martha. Martha's not the girl that goes to Starbucks and like sits for four hours with her Bible and her highlighters and her you know leather bound little notebook uh, and takes photos on Instagram. Like that's not Martha. Martha's the girl who loves to make casseroles to the glory of Jesus Christ. And um, all the hungry men said, "Amen." Okay, and so. Um, so let me show you how uh, the scriptures seem to champion Martha's in the Bible. And so let me, let me show you this, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. 
So they gave dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So here's what's happening. There's going to be a big Jewish celebration of Passover, one of the main festivals they would have celebrated as uh, God's people, and it happens in Jerusalem. And so uh, Jesus is now traveling into the city of Jerusalem for Passover, and he stops by uh, Lazarus' house. Uh, Bethany is uh, home for Lazarus, and it's located two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's in the town, and Martha says, Jesus, come on over. Let's hang out. I want to throw you a huge dinner party because I want, I want you to be the guest of honor. I want to celebrate you, and I want to serve you, and I want to make a meal for you and your disciples because you are the God that came in and raised my brother from death to life. And so I want to serve you, and I want to worship you, and I want to honor you. And so what happens is Martha gets busy making a meal. She steps in. She's mixing the ingredients. She's got her favorite apron on, and she is, like, going for it, okay? I picture her chopping up stuff. I picture her getting the drinks right, the table right. You've been around Martha's. They are frantic in the kitchen, okay? There's no playing around. It's business time. And, uh, and yet, this in, uh, yet this isn't the first time we've seen Martha in that serving role, is it? If you know your Bibles, you know that, that Martha isn't always championed for her ability to serve. Actually, previously, she was actually rebuked for the way that she served. And the circumstances on the surface are exactly the same. There's a dinner party. Jesus is there. Friends and family are there. And yet, what does she do? Um, She's serving. In Luke chapter 10, we get a picture of this. And in Luke chapter 10, um, it was a previous dinner. Uh, Jesus uh, is, is there at her house. Martha's in the kitchen cooking. And it says that the Bible says that she was distracted and anxious about many things. She was sitting in the kitchen, and she was like, hey, are we going to have enough food? Man, is this going to be any good? This could go wrong. And by the way, why am I in the kitchen all alone? Where's my help? You guys look like you haven't been there, but um, when I'm putting the kids in the bathtub and then I'm putting them to bed and I'm reading stories, I'm like, if my wife is on Facebook, somebody's going to die tonight, okay? So, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Somebody better jump up in here and help me, okay? There's three in one, okay? So I need some help, okay? And so... um, uh, anyways, I'm going to get an email about that. Okay, so, so, so that's where Martha's at. She's in that posture, and she's anxious. She's distracted. So she said, Jesus, tell my sister to get up. It's cool that she's having friend time with you and telling stories, but I need her to help in the kitchen. And Jesus says, you are an anxious hot mess. No, Mary has chosen rightly. Mary is enjoying the presence of God, and you are worried about many things. She gets rebuked in her serving. And then in this passage, there's no rebuke. There's just this flavor of celebration of Martha. And so what changed? Well, Martha changed. Martha changed. She was once serving out of a place of duty and anxiety, and now she's serving out of a place of gratitude and joy. She made Christianity about how she could serve Jesus first, but now she's realized that Christianity is about how King Jesus has served her. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's Twitter-worthy right there. That's a gospel bomb. (laughs) Dropping them, okay? So... So here's what happens. Um, All of a sudden, she's free from worrying about her performance. Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Oh, I got to make a name. I got to be moralistic. I got to be religious. I got to do this thing for Jesus. Now, Jesus is the one who literally healed her brother, saved her brother. Jesus is the one who came and said what? I've come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus served in his life. He washed the disciples' feet, and then he served in his death. He went to the cross, and what did he do there? He died for our sins, not his sin. He served and put our needs above his own. And so what happens, Christians, this paradigm needs to happen in our lives, by the way. 
Because have we not met people who um, they're serving, they're doing all of the right things, their hands are busy, but their hearts are exhausted? Why? Because they're serving out of a posture where it's about me, and there's anxiety, and there's religion, and there's moralistic, and they're trying to do it for all the wrong reasons, and they're exhausted, versus when you experience the gospel, you start to serve because you've been served. Jesus is the one who served you in his life and his death, and out of that posture, not only do you have busy hands, but you have a full heart. Amen? What a crazy reality. Christians, I think one of the, the healthiest responses we have to the gospel is um, that we don't just think rightly about Jesus. We don't just feel rightly about Jesus, but our hands get empowered for action. We become Marthas to the glory of God. We make casseroles for the glory of Jesus. We start to serve people in tangible ways. And people look in and don't just see good people doing good things. They see a picture of King Jesus. So if you're in a city group and there's um, just this last week, there was a, a young couple that had a family and they're from another country. They have no family here. He's getting his PhD in mathematics, okay? I did that a couple years ago and I helped him get into school. And so um, <laughs> why are y'all laughing right now? So, um, but it, that's why he's here. And he is an awesome dude in our city group, been a part of our church for a long time. He has uh, like his third kid in three years. I don't even know how it's possible, okay? So he's exhausted. They bring this, home, uh, this baby home. And uh, what happens is, I was so impressed by the love of Jesus Christ that, that just flooded into him. I called him this week and said, what's going on? He said, dude, people from our city group have stopped at the hospital. They were praying over me and my wife. They have called and texted me. And there's like casseroles showing up on my doorstep every single day. We got so much food. You need to come over and help me eat it. I was like, I was there. I was already there. I'm on my way <laughs> right now, you know. And, and church, I just want to celebrate you guys. You guys are serving in radical ways. You know, like the whole rule of like 80, you know, 20% does 80% of the work. That's not our story at our church. It's not because we have a cool program to recruit you to serve. Like what happens is I think you guys get the gospel and you're saying, Jesus has served me and I want to serve other people. And that's part of my worship. Amen. So, um, yes, such a cool thing. So anyways, I want to, I want to champion us. I want to call you guys to be a serving church, not because you're moralistic and you're better than somebody else that isn't serving. I want us to be a people who serve because God gets the glory. We get the joy and it's a great response to the gospel. Okay. Uh, number three, I want to look at Mary's response. We've seen Martha. We want to see Mary and Mary generously begins to worship Jesus. She generally, uh, generously gets to start to worship Jesus. So, um, why I want to learn from this is, um, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, I kind of came from a conservative uh, place. So we're Midwesterners. We are not naturally emotional or expressive. That's not primarily our posture. Um, and the reason I know this, I, I grew up kind of going to a church that was religious in nature. But I would go in there and people just looked like lifeless and dead. Okay? They were like, when is it over and when can I watch football? Like that was the primary posture. And so I didn't see people expressively worshiping God. And, and it really didn't have a value in my life. So then all of a sudden I go to college and uh, some college kids invite me to this retreat called Fall Getaway. And there's like hundreds of college students from all over the country or all over the state. And they're there. And I walk into this gymnasium and there's a guy with a guitar singing songs about Jesus. And like hundreds of college students are in abandonment of Jesus. Like hands are up. You guys know there's always those people in the front dancing, right? And they're just going for it. There's people weeping in the back, confessing sin to one another. I, I walked in that gymnasium and said, I must have got off on the wrong exit. You know, what is, what is happening? I don't know if I love Jesus like these guys do. And I was a little freaked out for a second. And I had this moment. I was like, what? I don't know if I belong in this gym. These people are going for it. And yet, one thing that happened is, is I started realizing, I don't know if I love Jesus like they do. I don't know if I've experienced his grace in a personal way like they have. 
I, I don't know if I've been in the presence of God like these people are right now. And what might think freaked somebody out actually drew me into the mystery that is worshiping King Jesus in a real way. And, um, and that weekend, God, God stirred my heart in some fresh ways. And that's what we see in, in this story. Martha is going to worship Jesus, not in a way that is filtered or that is socially normal. She is going to abandon everything, and she is going to worship the God that she has found incredibly worthy. Let me show you guys verse 3. We're back at the dinner party. It says this, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can you guys imagine this? Like, picture yourself in this room. You're all ready to eat dinner. Mary stands up. She goes and gets the most expensive thing in the house. Then she goes to the very feet of Jesus, and she is overwhelmed by all that God has done for her. So she takes Jesus' dirty feet, feet that have been dirty from traveling on dirt roads, and she starts to clean them with the most expensive thing that she owns. And then she uses her hair as a towel. She lets her hair down, which in that culture, women just didn't do. This is a powerful picture of a woman who clearly sees Jesus as the one who's worthy of her unashamed worship. And later we find out this, this, this like perfume that she's using is not like JV at the dollar store kind of stuff, okay? She goes and gets the most expensive. Judas later says it's worth 300 denarii. A denarii was a daily wage. And so this is 300 days of labor. And she's pouring out her very best at the very feet of Jesus. You see the generosity here? She's not holding some back. She's not bringing the JV stuff forward. She is joyfully bringing her very, very best to the very feet of Jesus. And church, again, do you guys want to know one of the ways you can worship Jesus is through your generosity? And you know how this happens? Is when you understand that there is nobody more generous in the universe than God. But what, what God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then what did Jesus do? He came and he enjoyed, laid down his life so that we could have eternal life. And then what did, what did Jesus do? What did he say? He said, I will send you and I will give you the Holy Spirit because I'm not about to leave you without the presence of God. There is nobody more generous than the Trinity. And we are people primarily that don't come to the foot of the cross saying, here's what I have to give. We come to the foot of the cross and we receive generously what we have not earned and what we do not deserve. And so in response to that, here's Mary coming back to the feet of Jesus saying, everything I have is yours. Church, I pray that we get to the place where we look at everything we have and we say we own nothing. We have it, but it's not ours. Jesus has access to it all. Amen? What a picture of gospel-centered um, generosity. And um, one of the things I see here is that this is not just a generous act of worship, but this is a public act of worship. And what's happening here is, remember, this room is filled with Jesus, the disciples, Mary, Martha, uh, Lazarus is there. Everybody's there. This is a crowded room. This is a crowded dinner party. And Martha spontaneously, or Mary spontaneously gets up and worships at the feet of Jesus. Isn't it true, church, that whatever's happening in here is going to ooze out? Is it not true? Like, You might have a personal relationship with God, but I promise you, you start walking with Jesus in real ways, it's going to come out of your mouth. It's going to show up in your expression of worship in him. It's true. I've seen it happen in this room, and it is awesome. I got this friend named Dory. I asked her for permission to share the story. I love Dory. Okay, Dory is 70 years old, and uh, Dory has an amazing story of suffering and yet being fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. She is a woman who, for the first kind of 10 years of her life, was passed around in 
foster care. She was an orphan. And then uh, she gets married, thought this is going to be the thing that satisfies. It doesn't work out. It ends in disappointing ways. Then she becomes a single mom. Jesus meets her there in her desperation. But guess what? Suffering didn't stop just because she accepted Jesus. All of a sudden, she's got um, real struggles. She's seen kids walk through trials. She's walked through brokenness. And you know what's amazing about this woman? I look over at her as in this room as we're singing to Jesus, and she is responding to God in amazing ways. Her face is beaming with life. Her hands are up. She's a grandma, and she's got these hips that are moving in weird, inappropriate ways, and I don't know what's happening. I'm a little uncomfortable. I said, Dora, you got to stop shaking it like that, okay? I don't know. I don't know where the line is, but that seems like you're kind of starting to cross it, okay? She just laughs. I love it. And who's going to tell Dory what to do at 70? She's going to do whatever she wants. She can shake it if she wants. Okay, Dory, you do you. Listen, I think the application can be some of us have put boundaries on ourselves. Like, you know, I came from this tradition. And so um, I just, you know, the only anointed position for Jesus to be working in my life is right here. Like, dude, it's okay to put your hands up. Okay. It's okay to let what's happening on the inside be expressive in the physical nature. That's what we see in Mary. And um, also... Um, I think one of the things that Mary does is, is she is responding to the grace of God in her life. And she is not going to f- let fear of what everybody in that room thinks of her stop her. And here's how I want to press this into our church. I believe we're, we're about to do a baptism on August 6th. And you know what baptism is? It's, it's yes, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's then you declaring publicly for the entire family of God. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for me. This is my story. And this is why he's the hero of it. That's what it is. And um, Mary wasn't going to let the fear of what other people thought stop her from acting in obedience to where God was leading her. I want to pray that same thing for you. Maybe you became a Christian. Would you give us the great joy of celebrating what God has done in your life in this place? I love baptisms. And some of you guys have been a Christian for a really long time, and you keep thinking to yourself, what are people going to think if I get baptized? You know, they're going to probably thought I did this years ago. I've been faking it till I make it all the way through. Would you stop, okay? Could you just obey God's command to get baptized and let us celebrate? Nobody's judging you. We are going to celebrate what God has done. I'm loving this. So, guys, um, I look at Mary's response, and I want us to learn from her. Uh, we're going to move on to Judas. Uh, uh, number four is Judas tried to use Jesus. So we're back here at the dinner party. Place yourself back at the dinner party. Here's Martha serving, making dinner. Mary is worshiping Jesus at the feet Uh, of him. And it's a powerful moment. Tears are flowing. God is receiving the glory that he deserves. And then Judas interrupts this amazing moment of worship and intimacy and love and passion by talking about how we could have reallocated the resources that are the spices. Okay. Um, It feels cold. It feels incredibly inappropriate because it is, it's not the moment to have that conversation. But what we learn from Judas is Judas isn't about Jesus He's not, that's not his treasure. Judas is after uh, some personal gain. And so let me show you this, chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Let's read it. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the the poor, but because he was a thief. And not having, uh, and having uh, charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So notice that Judas is saying all the right things with his mouth. Hey, what about the poor, Jesus? But he's masking um, a theological conversation about the poor. Um, He's trying to mask his greed underneath that conversation and underneath those words. 
You know what I, I find interesting is, is Judas is in this thing for himself. He's, he's following Jesus because Jesus is good for business. You know what I mean? The, what's happening here is he was following Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to become an earthly king. He thought Jesus was going to become a moral teacher. He thought Jesus was going to give him a position of influence because he was in right relationship with Jesus. He thought, if I'm just in proximity, then I'm going to get blessing. I'm going to get hooked up. All these things are going to come my way. What I find interesting is that Mary found Jesus beautiful. Mary found Jesus lovely. Mary found Jesus worthy. Judas found Jesus useful. And we will live in one of these postures. Religion says, I will do for God because God will give me something back. The gospel says, Jesus, you have it all because you've done it all for me. I love you, and everything I do comes out of a motivation of affection for you. Amen? And um, some of you guys are like, okay, that's neat, but that doesn't really apply to me. But yes, it does. Here's how it works. Because, um, because I understand the games we play because I'm sinful. I'm sinful num- sinful dude number one. And so... Here's what I know. Some of you guys come to this church and you think that the Judases are out there. And I'm telling you that Judas nature is in us and it's right here. And what we can do, if we're not careful, is we can make this thing a a spiritual country club where we use the church because we want a place for our kids to find other nice kids. We want to find some social status so we work ourselves into a position of leadership. We, We like all the services that are around here. And so we are not, we don't come here because we love Jesus and we want to respond to what he's done. We come here because it's kind of good for me. It's a good place to network and find some business contacts. And we reduce the church to something that it was never meant to be. It's supposed to be a people who are wildly passionate about Jesus because Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Amen? Okay, so there's Judas. We're going to move on to the last one because I'm running out of time. So we got Lazarus uh, is the last one I want to look at. It says that Lazarus lived as a witness for Jesus. If you look at Lazarus' life, um, it's amazing because he never preaches a sermon. He uh, never plants a church. He never starts a public ministry. And yet it's going to say in these verses that many came to faith. Many believed in Jesus based on his account. And uh, he is going to be on the most wanted list of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Who do they want to kill and stop? Jesus and Lazarus. And um, I want to know how that conversation went, by the way. Have you ever tried to picture the religious leaders trying to intimidate and strong-arm Lazarus? Hey, Lazarus, we're going to need you to dial back the whole uh, Jesus made me alive conversation because people are leaving our movement and joining Team Jesus. Okay, so you want me to stop? What if I don't? Well, we're going to arrest you and probably try to kill you. Well, see, here's the thing. Uh, Jesus does this thing where he shows up every time I die and raises me to life. And so, like, if you want to do it now, you can do it now. We can handle this later. But I'm pretty confident Jesus is going to win. And so... um, I mean, you know, like he was one of the most bold witnesses ever because he understood the power of Jesus. And so let me show you how this gets worked out. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 9 and 11, it says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom uh, he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can you imagine the simplicity of Lazarus' story? Um, So, Lazarus, we came here to hear from you what happened. We heard about it. Yeah, here's what happened. I got got sick, and um, I died. And then there was like a funeral, and I guess they put me in this tomb. And then Jesus showed up, and he raised me to life. And he said he was the resurrection and the life. And then he showed up, and then like he actually raised me from the grave. So, Lazarus, did you do some kind of like essential oil treatment before they put you in? 
No, dude, like it was straight up Jesus. You know, I mean, did you stretch and do some yoga and drink water? I'm not even vegan. Jesus just did it. You know, I mean, it's like, it's amazing. And you know what's amazing about Lazarus? is he very clearly understands that it's, life is not about how he's going to do something for Jesus. Life is about what Jesus has already done for him. Like he never took a spiritual gift test to figure out where he's efficient in ministry. He just said, this is my story. I was dead and now I'm alive. You know, that's powerful. People want to debate creation and evolution. They want to debate interpretations of the Bible. But you know what they cannot debate? When somebody says, I was an addict and now I've been set free because Jesus Christ showed up in my life. You want to know? Yeah, somebody's back here saying hallelujah. Okay, I'm with you right here. Spirit's about to drop on this place. Okay, so, um, but, but is that not powerful? When we come and say, listen, I didn't have hope. I was depressed, and yet I found a hope that is worthy in the person and work of Jesus Christ because he crushed the grave and he's risen to new life. What happens to the person who says, I was looking for love in all the wrong places, all these relationships, all this acceptance I was trying to derive from all the wrong things, and yet I finally found the love I was looking for. Jesus Christ has loved me not just at my best, but he's loved me at my worst, and it's satisfied a part of my soul that nothing else ever could. The world doesn't have an answer for that. And that's our story. It's personal to me. I was a dude that was not physically dead and came alive. I was a dude that was spiritually dead and came alive. I was an addict. I pursued things that were not of uh, the Lord. I pursued relationships and thought those would satisfy. I used people in the pursuit of my own pleasures. And I didn't move from a, a bad kid to a good kid because I read some books. I moved from a spiritually dead person to a spiritually alive person because Jesus Christ came to seek and save me. Amen? So here's what I want, church. You might not ever get on stage and preach a sermon. You might not ever plant a church. None of that matters. I want you to be people who are equipped with a very simple story that you were dead and now Jesus Christ has made you alive. Would you boldly tell that story to the watching world? Because your friends and your coworkers and your family members, and they need to hear the good news that is Jesus Christ, that there is one that can make the dead things of your life alive. Amen? Amen. So as I close, I want to remind you guys, there is five different responses here in our story that we've looked at. And um, all of this, I just want to say all of this is empty without Jesus initiating. That Jesus is the one that initiates. That's why we respond to him. He's the one who came down from heaven, lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. He raised from the grave. Um, and that gives us hope that one day we will be victorious over death in the same way that Jesus Christ has. And so now our life is not about proving or earning. Our life is about responding. And uh, church, I want to ask you, how have you responded to Jesus? Has he been prompting you to do, to serve, to give, to witness, to be bold, to love? Has he been prompting him and you've been silencing him, pushing him away? For some of you guys, maybe today is the day that you need to respond in faith. You've been pushing away and rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ in the days you need to say, I receive you. You're the resurrection and the life and I place my faith in you. I want to pray that our church we would be a people who consistently respond to the grace of God by worshiping him and making much of him. Amen? So let me pray. Jesus, I want to say thank you for your ongoing grace. God, you are the one that can make dead things alive. You're the one that's made me a new creation in Christ Jesus, and you are the one that has made those in this room that know you. They're called your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God, when the world looks at them, they see a picture of your mighty hand, the one that has sculpted them and shaped them and transformed them, the one that has loved them and wooed them and ministered to them from the inside out. And I pray that, God, people wouldn't look at us 
and see a good person, they would see a live person because of Jesus Christ. Pray that we would be people who boldly proclaim uh, the life that we have in you, and we make you the champion of our story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.